How do you cope under pressure? When everything falls apart, when the bottom drops out of your world, do you panic? Do you freak out? Do you lose it? Or do you remain calm, focused, and in control? Do you give up and give in to your circumstances? Or do you step up and be clear-minded and proactive? I was reading something where somebody was talking about the pressure they were under. And somebody said, you know, pressure, uh, scientists tell us that rocks under pressure can produce diamonds. And he said, yeah, but what about the ones that don't produce diamonds? He says, oh, they just turn to dust. And uh, I, I, I kind of feel like some of us under pressure, we become diamonds and others of us crumble and become dust. I see Chris here this morning, Chris and Ruth. Uh, mostly Ruth had a little boy this week. Um, Chris was involved in part of it a while ago, but uh, nine months ago. But uh, Joshua, little Joshua, was born eight pounds four ounces. Yes, and uh, so let's congratulate them. Chris was trying to bluff me last night that he wasn't going to be here this morning, but I, I knew he would. Um, but uh, I'm sure this didn't happen with Chris. But I heard a story about a man's wife who went into labour, and he panicked. And he phoned 999 and he said, my wife's about to have a baby. The contractions are only two minutes apart. What do I do? And the operator said, now calm down. Is this her first child? And the husband said, no, I'm her husband. I'm not her first child. And, and sometimes we, when we're in panic and we don't think clearly. A fascinating book was on the bestsellers list for a while there. And it's called The Unthinkable. What happens when disaster strikes and why? And it talks about how in moments of disaster, in moments of high pressure and stress, our brains often behave differently than they do the rest of the time. We think irrationally. And the author says that we go through this three-stage uh, process. And the first one is denial. We simply go, this cannot be happening. I think we can all identify with that. This cannot be happening. It's a bad dream. It, if I just close my eyes and open them, it'll be gone. And then we realize it is happening, and that's called deliberation when we begin to see things clearly. And the third thing is the decisive moment when we decide if we're going to do something. How are we going to respond? Do we become passive victims who freeze and just let life happen to us? Or do we show strength and resilience and, uh, and, and take action to change things? And we're continuing our series. We're in week two of three weeks in this series called Unsinkable. How to survive the storms of life. And we've been looking at the Apostle Paul last week. We looked at Acts 27 and how he has been a prisoner under house arrest in Caesarea at this stage for two years. He's been in legal limbo. He's not been charged formally, but he's not been released. And he is fed up after two years. And so he appeals as a Roman citizen to the highest court in the land of Caesar. And so he's transported to Rome with a centurion called Julius. And uh, he also has two other friends with him. He's got Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, and he's also writing Acts. And so when you see the word we in the book of Acts, it's because Luke was with him and is writing it firsthand as a reporter. And this other guy, Aristarchus, who's a partner in the gospel with him. And Paul has already spent a lot of time at sea uh, through his missionary journeys. He's been shipwrecked three times. 
Like, that's not good crack right there. Like, to be shipwrecked once, uh, you know, my parents enjoy cruises and they tell me about some of the horrendous stuff and the sea storms and all of that. And I go, why would you pay for that? Um, but, but, but shipwrecked three times. I, I think after two, I might just pack it in and fly. Um, but uh, they set out on this journey and Paul doesn't think it's a good idea. Look at what we read in verses 9 to 11. Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and also to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on. Notice what Paul says, I can see that this is going to be disastrous. Not I think, I can see. I think he's had a vision here. I think somehow he's had a prophetic revelation from God that this is not going to go well. But really, who is Paul here? He's a prisoner and he's a preacher. And I know us preachers think we know everything, but in this case, he is at the bottom of the food chain. He is, uh, there's the, the pilot and the captain, and then there's the centurion, and way down here somewhere is Paul. So why should they listen to Paul? Because he has no power. And so the majority decide to ignore preacher boy here and to go off in their own direction. And I finished by saying this, that the voices we listen to will determine the storms we face. The voices we listen to, and there's voices all around us in life. There's voices in the media, there's voices in work, there's voices in politics, there's voices in religion, voices in our family, voices, voices, voices. And the voices you listen to will determine the storms you face. And Paul here, we said, represents the word of God on the ship. The majority represent worldly wisdom, but Paul represents the word of God. And that's the ultimate authority in our lives. That God's word directs how we live. God's word directs how we treat each other. God's word, look at this Bible. Any of you have an old Bible that you just can't let go of? There's duct tape and gorilla tape and everything sticking this together. But, uh, But when we live under the authority of God's word, our lives go to one direction. If we place our lives over God's word, our lives end up shipwrecked and unfortunately in our culture and even in the church so many people are now saying we have authority over God's word when actually sometimes you'll see me doing this when I pray before a sermon it's simply a way of illustrating that I'm under the authority of the word of God when we live by God's word we can avoid shipwrecks and most of the time we don't break God's word we break ourselves against God's word because when we go against God's word we suffer loss and we end up in a shipwreck. And so, look at verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along to the shore of Crete. At first, it seems the majority was right, and Paul was wrong. A gentle wind sounds so pleasant, doesn't it? Sounds like everything's just going nicely. A nice little cruise. And you know what I've found in my own life? When I disobey God, when I'm controlled by the wrong voices, when I do my own thing, at first it feels like everything's going fine. Do you ever find that? 
that actually things can actually go quite well for a while. That you think you've got away with it. That maybe even God is blessing you. And so you're thinking, this is great. I, I wasn't sure if it was the right thing, but it looks like God is with me. But look at the next verses, verses 14 and 15. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. This gentle breeze has become a hurricane, gale force wind, called the Northeaster. Now, I'm no meteorological expert, but when they give wind a name, I know it's never good. Have you found that? Hurricane Gilbert. Hurricane Katrina. When they add a name to it, it's never a sign that it's a gentle breeze, let's go to the beach. It's, it's a sign that something bad is going to happen. And the force against them is coming so strong that look at what it says. We gave way to it and were driven along. They just gave way to it. They were just controlled by it. When we're driving anywhere, I like to drive. I'm not saying my wife's a bad driver. I'm just saying I prefer to be behind the wheel. Maybe I'm con- a control freak. Maybe I feel safer. I feel safer. But, uh, but, but I do. I like to be in control. I, I, like to, I, I like to be behind the wheel. And I like to drive faster than my wife does. Um, but I've discovered that there's a difference between driving and being driven. And when you're driven... Somebody else has control. When you're driving, you have control. And it's the same in life. There's a huge difference between driving and being driven. In both, you're moving, but one, you're driven by the circumstances around you, and one, you're in control. Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about Christians who are driven, not driving. Look at what he says. They're infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul's talking about people who are just tossed about on the waves of every opinion, every attitude, every command, every voice that comes their way. They have no grounding in the word of God and so they're tossed and thrown about and they have no foundation foundation to stabilize them in life. I've seen churches do it. Churches that are thrown by every fad. Every new teaching that comes out of America. Every new church growth method. Every revival thing. Every, every prophetic movement. Every new way of doing church. They're just thrown about and the church doesn't know where they are because they're not grounded in the word of God. And at different times in my own life I've had to ask the question, am I driving here or am I being driven? Am I still in control or is this thing controlling me? Emotionally, we can be driven. Anger can drive us. You know, you don't have to be controlled by anger. And something happens and you just suddenly you're driven. It's like, it's like you see red and everything just becomes a blur and you just lose it. That is not you in control. Somebody says something, somebody does something and you're so deeply offended and something just triggers in you and it just gets blown out of all proportion. That's you being driven. 
Some area of your life which started as something harmless, something to help you get through the day, where you self-medicate, where you prescription medicate, where you do something, where you look at something. And at the start, you're in control. But over time, it starts to control you. You've moved from the driver's seat to the passenger seat, and soon you're in the boot. And it started off so harmless and innocent. But eventually, you can't stop it. And you say, well, I can stop it any time I want. I'm in control. Try it. If you can stop it, try it for a week. If this isn't controlling you, if this is not driving you, stop it for a week. That's one of the things I love about our week of prayer and fasting, which we're having at the end of the month. It starts the last Sunday of the month. You can all get excited about that. Eat all the cakes you can this morning, folks. You've got a real good excuse. But there's something about the week of prayer and fasting. And if there's some things that are struggles in your life that are driving you, it's a good week. Do you know for me last year, part of it was sugar. Until the week of prayer and fasting last year, I would have had a quarter chocolate cake or a quarter cheesecake every night of the week. (laughs) Yeah, somebody's obviously not got a sweet tooth. Get this guy a sick bag. Um, But honestly, for years, truth, truth. My wife said truth. Every night, by 10 o'clock, quarter chocolate cake, quarter cheesecake. And with the week of prayer and fasting last year, and that just stopped. Now, I've gone off the wagon over Christmas a bit, I must confess. Some of you are thinking that. Um, but, but it, it, and so last year we called our week of prayer and fasting seek, if you remember. I've really felt this week as I've been praying into it, we're to call it Reset. Reset. God wants to reset some things in our lives. God wants, you know when you, you reset your phone or you reset your computer because it's not functioning properly and it gets rid of all the junk that's stopping it? I think God wants to reset some of our lives this year. And part of that reset will be getting rid of the things that are driving us and starting to take back control and giving God control of those things. It could be gossiping, dishonesty, gambling, substance abuse. What do you look at online? But over time, you give more and more of yourself to it. And it starts to control you. And it started feeling really good, but now it doesn't because none of us like being controlled by other things. We like to feel like we're in control. It could be a relationship. If you're not married, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend has control of you. You've totally given yourself to them. And you will do anything to hold on to that relationship, even to the detriment of yourself, your family, and your relationship with God. Maybe it's your work. That you're so desperate to keep your job that you will do anything. You will cut corners. You will twiddle the books a bit just to, you know, that you'll put in wrong sales figures just to keep your job. And those things are controlling you. Proverbs 25, 28 says this. Like a city whose walls are broken down, are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. You see, the city walls in those days weren't there to restrict the people. They were there to protect the people. And God's law and God's word and self-discipline is not there to restrict us, it's there to protect. Is there to look after our freedom. And so ask yourself right now, 
Are there any areas of your life that you need to get out of the passenger seat and get back into the driver's seat? Titus 2 says this, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. And we're all about grace and we're a church that teaches about grace and we're a culture that loves grace. But look at what grace does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is an empowerment to say no to sin. Grace comes and lives within you in the person of Jesus and it enables you to no longer have to sin. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life is that you're able to say no to some things that you weren't able to control any more. But this is probably too convicting, so let's keep moving to verses 16 to 19. As we passed to the lay of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that it would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. See that phrase, driven along again. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. A few things I want you to see here. The first one is this. Storms sort out our priorities. Have you found that? Storms sort out our priorities. I heard about a young, arrogant, rich guy who had just got a brand new top-of-the-range BMW and he's flying along the mountain road and the car screeches and, and, and breaks and skids and at the last minute before the car careens over the hill, the driver jumps out. The car flies down the hill as a crumpled wreck and bursts into flames. A trucker had just been driving in front of him. He looks in his rearview mirror and sees what's happened. So he stops and he runs back to the driver. And he looks at him. And he says to him, well, he, he, first of all, he looks at him. And he sees the driver looking down at his car going, my BMW, my brand new BMW. But something else had happened. As the man was jumping from the car, his arm had caught on the door and his arm had been ripped off. And so he's standing there looking down at his BMW and the truck driver says, look, I see your car and that's bad, but I want to tell you there's something much worse. Have you looked at your arm? And the man looks at his arm and he begins to say, my Rolex, my brand new Rolex. Sometimes... We get things out of perspective. Paul's on a big boat here. We read later that it carried 276 people on board as well as a cargo grain and supplies. And before the storm, the most valuable thing on board that ship was the cargo. It was going to make them money. That was what they were trying to get to their destination to sell. But look at what happens in the storm. They began to throw the cargo overboard and the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 38, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. You see, once the storm hits, they begin to separate what they thought was valuable and what is really valuable. Have you found that in your own life? I know I have. That there's things that I think are really important. Things I think I can't live without. Things that 
are just part of life and then a storm hits and you start to get perspective and you realize, I thought that was so important and it is so not important. Like that, yes, it's, it's, it's somewhere on the scale of, of things that are, I need in my life, but I had it up here when really it's down here. That storms in our life, sickness in our life, when a family member is sick, when a family member is dying, it's amazing how much our perspective and our priorities can get reassessed. Apparently when the Titanic sank, 11 millionaires went down with it, and one of them called Major Putin left $300,000. Now, this was over 100 years ago. I was going to say that was a lot of money then. It's a lot of money now. $300,000 in money and jewellery in a box in his cabin. He survived and he was later asked, how did you feel about losing so much money when the ship went down? How did you feel about leaving it behind? And he said this. He said, the money seemed a mockery to me at the time. I picked up three oranges instead. It's so easy to lose sight of what's really important. There's things you think you need right now. But if a storm hit you, would they help you get through the storm? Or would you let them go? I have had the privilege over the years of sitting with many people in their last hours of life. I've held people's hands in hospital at 3 a.m. as they've breathed their last. And in those last days and hours of life, they never talk about their bank balance. They never talk about how successful they were in work. They never talk about their big house or their fancy car. They talk about two things. Family. God. That's it. That's all I've ever heard people talk about. Nobody in their deathbed says they wish they'd spend more time in the office. They talk about family and God. Because that's what life has come down to. Maybe that's why Jesus was asked, what's the two greatest commandments? And he said this, love your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because he realized that when everything else is stripped away, your relationship with God and your relationships with other people are all that really matter. What's most important in your life right now as we begin a new year? Is it stuff or people, your career or your family? Is it pleasure or fun or loving and seeking God? Is it temporary things or things that last? Because I can give up so much time and energy and emotion and affection and attention to things that really don't matter. To temporary things. And I can neglect eternal things. To things that seem important in the moment. Like this morning at 7 o'clock I was up reading over my sermon and my little boy came in and he just wanted to sit in my lap for 10 minutes. And in those moments, everything within me just wanted to say, Elijah, I'm working. I need you to get out. I just, I'm, and I just looked at this little six-year-old in my lap and I went, what's most important right now? He just wants to Like there will be a day when I will go, I'd love to get back to those days when my son just crawled onto my lap and just wanted to chat. And I just let him sit there for a while and then I kicked him out. But true story, like he was going on and on, like right enough, there has to be a line somewhere. But uh, after 10 minutes, I did. But you know what? Those 10 minutes were really special. (laughs) But you worship a more godly preacher. Um, But but I did. I just, in those 10 minutes, I thought, you know what? This can wait a little bit because he just wants to sit with daddy. 
he just wants to sit in his daddy's lap and just talk about stuff. And he had been woken up a wee nightmare last night and he wanted to talk about that and different things. And, and I just thought, you know what? In a year from now, a week from now, not one of you will have remembered what I have said. But I wonder if in 10 years he'll remember the morning he sat in his daddy's lap and his daddy gave him time just to talk to him. We have got to figure out what's really important. Maybe we need to take the example of the men in the ship and there's some things we just need to throw overboard at the minute. There's some things we just need to lighten the load with. Just chuck them. Desperation to despair. The duration and the intensity of the storm is increasing. And the longer it goes on, the more dangerous it gets. They've become desperate. They fear the boat might actually start to fall apart. And so they get these huge ropes and they pass them underneath the boat and they basically try to hold the boat together. It's falling apart at the seams and they're passing these ropes underboard and basically tying them at the top. They're trying just to hold it together. Have you ever felt like that, that you're just trying to hold life together? I have. That you're just trying to keep, it's all falling apart. And if you can just keep it together for another day, you might just make it. You're so fragile, you feel like you're going to pieces. You see, most of us can handle a bad day. Most of us can handle a bad week. But what about a bad month? What about bad six months? What about when the storm doesn't seem to go away? I often use the illustration of a glass of water. I do this. And I say to people, how heavy is this glass of water? And do you know what the answer is? It depends how long you have to carry it. Even a, something light, if you have to carry it for six months, the stress on you. And a lot of people in this room are carrying small stresses and they don't seem like a big deal to other people. But if you're carrying them for month after month after month after month, if you're going through a small storm month after month, it can take its toll on you. And you begin to feel like you're falling apart, that you're just trying to hold it together. I've been there, folks. That's what happens in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. There's no sun during the day. There's no stars at night. They didn't have GPS in those days. They relied on the sun and stars for direction. In other words, they have no idea where they're going. They have no sense of direction. They're just being driven along. The darkness never lifts. Every morning there's darkness. Every night there's darkness. That sounds familiar to some people here. You get up every morning and there's just this heaviness and this darkness over you. You go to bed at night and there's just this heaviness and you get up in the morning and you just want to pull the covers over your head and hope that the world goes away. And you can eventually feel like what these guys are feeling. Look at what it says. We finally give up all hope of being saved. That's the worst place to be is when you give up all hope. That when you just think, you know what, this is just the way life is going to be. It's never going to be better. I just have to accept it. This is my lot in life. I may as well just give up. I just want to quit. You know what I've found in my own life? And I've been through this. When the storm keeps hitting, when it's unrelenting, you want to give up. You start thinking about ways of giving up. Of walking away. Running away. 
You want to give up on your job. You want to give up on your marriage. You want to give up on your faith. You want to give up on your church. You want to give up on your friendships. You just don't want to do this anymore. Here's some things I see here that can help us if we're in that place. First of all, let's read verses 21 to 26. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So they haven't eaten for some time because, let's face it, who wants to eat when you're in a storm and sea? And this is Paul's moment. This is where he shows what real unsinkable character looks like. Character isn't going with the majority. Character is not going with your feelings. Character is shown when the sun is gone. When you're in a storm and when you're being thrown about. Real character is shown in a crisis. You know what I find? Character doesn't make a person. Or or storms don't make a person's character. They simply reveal the character. The storms in our lives don't make us, they simply reveal. We're all like tubes of toothpaste. Whenever we're squeezed, what's inside comes out. And very often I've seen people who look like they have it all together, but when the storm comes, when the, when the shipwreck comes, when things are falling apart, suddenly they go to pieces and you go, goodness, I thought they were so much stronger than that. And so when everyone has given up all hope, when there's nothing but despair, that's when Paul comes to the fore and shows us real leadership. You see, the captain of the ship and the owner of the ship and the centurion on the ship, they were the guys with authority. They were the guys with a title. They were the guys with power and position and rank of leadership. But real leadership is not about a title. Real leadership is not about a position. Real leadership is not about having something before your name. Real leadership is shown when in a crisis, when things are falling apart, you step up and you take action. You don't need the title of a leader to be one. I don't need to call myself Reverend Craig or Pastor Craig. That doesn't make me a pastor or a reverend any more than the authority from God has done that. In fact, people who press too hard on being called titles, I kind of go, there's something a bit off there. Like, if if you have to tell people that you're the boss, you're probably not. You know? I'm the head of, I hear sometimes, I'm the head of my house, but my wife doesn't do anything I tell her. You know, and you're just like, if you have to tell her you're head of your house, you're probably not, okay, just a rain check for you. Um, leadership is not having a title or a position, and people chase titles and position. Leadership is knowing what to do when everything else is falling apart. Leadership is stepping up. Leadership is speaking up. Leadership is saying, I think this is the way we should go when everybody's losing their minds. Because a leader is someone who, when everyone else has a storm around them, he doesn't have the storm within him or her. You can have a storm around you, but there's a huge difference between having a storm around you and a storm within you. And Paul 
is a leader because the storm's out there, but it hasn't got in here yet. And look at what he says. He's human, so he can't help himself. Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice. (laughs) That's going to be my Mother's Day message this year. Men, you should have taken my advice. Um, Not to sail from Crete. Some of you ladies can put that into your fridge magnet when you get home. Uh, He basically says, I told you so. I mean, if I was on the boat, I'd want to give him the right hand of fellowship right there. I told you so. I told you this was going to How many people love that when you do something and they go, I told you so. But actually what Paul is doing here is he's establishing credibility for what he's about to go and do and say. He's essentially saying, I told you this would happen. You didn't listen to me, so maybe you will listen to me now. You see, what I've found when things are going well for other people, they may not listen to you. They may write you off. They may ignore you. They may think, who are you to tell me what to do? But when the storm hits, when things fall apart, they turn to the people who the storm hasn't got in here. I met a guy a while ago who was saved, who was following the Lord. And kind of honestly, he was one of those guys I didn't expect. I I thought he's more likely to kneecap me than pray for me. Um, Quite honestly, and I got to, and so I was intrigued. And I said, Tell me about how you came to know Jesus. And he said, I was one of those people who did not want to know about God. And at this mate, he was from Lurgan, at this mate who kept telling me about Jesus, and I kept telling him to clear off. And other people would tell me, and they would clear off because they were afraid of me. But this one friend, he kept going at me. He did it nicely. But he kept telling me I needed Jesus. And one day my life fell apart. I found myself arrested. I found myself at the end of myself. Who was the first person I called? The person who told me about Jesus. And that's how I got saved. When the storms of life had... And you have people in your life who look like they have it all together. They live in the nicest part of town. They've got the nicest house. They've got the biggest smile. But I want to tell you that if you live long enough, the storm will hit and it will hit them too. And they need somewhere to turn. And if you are the one who seems to have something that they don't have, it's to you they're going to turn. And that's where you don't point them to you. You point them to Jesus Christ because he is the rock on which you stand through every storm. And just to give it time. You don't need to preach. Just be there for them. And when the storm hits, I guarantee It'll be you they turn to. Storms have a way of making us reevaluate our priorities. In the middle of the storm, what Paul lacked in position and title, he made up for in authority and credibility. So they're now ready to listen. Look at what he says, I'm nearly done. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now, face forward, Paul says, okay, here's why you're in a storm. It's your own fault. It's your own mistakes. It's your own decisions. And it's your own stupidity. And that's good to know because sometimes it's not Satan who puts us in a storm. It's our own mistakes. It's our own decisions. And it's our own stupidity. As I often say, the devil can have a field day sometimes. He can go to Galgorm and have a spa day because he doesn't need to do anything because I'm good enough at making the mistakes on my own. And sometimes we end up in a mess not because of the enemy but because of our own decisions. We saw the warning signs and ignored them. People said, don't do that, and you decided to do it. I knew what God's word said, but I wanted to do it anyway. And you know what? When you go against God's word, you will always suffer loss. When you live against what this word says, I want to tell you, you will always suffer loss. You might look like you've got it, 
together for a while, that everything's going well, but you will suffer loss. And now they're on a sinking ship, life's falling apart, and you don't know what to do. But look at those two words at the end, but now. But now. Those change everything. He's not talking about but then, because we can't do anything about but then, but now. You might have things you did in your past that you deeply regret, that you thought you would never do, and you're living with shame, guilt, and regret. That's but then, but what about but now? You can't do anything about but then, but you can do something about but now. Maybe you were in a relationship, and it ended up in divorce, and maybe you were to blame, and you're living with guilt, and you're struggling to get into another relationship, and you're living here, and God says, I don't care so much about but then, what are you going to do but now? You might have failed miserably. You might have regrets about but then. But our God is the I am. But now. But now changes everything. And some of you I feel need to draw a line in the sand. And you need to say, you know what? I've been living in what could have, would have, should have happened. And I've been living in a place of regret and shame and guilt about my past. And there's things I have done that I wish I had never done. And if I could go back there, I would never do them again. But that was but then. And God is saying, what about now? But now you can move. But now you can change. But now you can press forward into what I have for you. Verse 22, but now. I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Change your focus. Look at the sentence again. Because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Is that good news or bad news? Depends what part of the sentence you focus on, doesn't it? Not one of you will be lost. That's good news. Only the ship will be destroyed. (laughs) Only the ship. For every other person in the boat, the ship was everything. The ship staying afloat was their only hope. The ship represents what you think is holding you up right now. It's what you think is keeping you afloat. It's what you think you can't live without. It's carrying you. The ship is where you look for security. For some of you, your ship is your job. Because so much of your identity comes from your job. For some of you, it's your marriage, your relationships, your family, your kids, your finances, your bank balance, your looks, your relationships. It can even be your church. And if your hope is in the boat, then I want to tell you that you're not going to stay afloat. If your hope is in the boat, you're not going to stay afloat. Because when the boat goes down, you're sunk. Paul says, keep your courage Have courage. If your hope is in the boat, you end up with conditional courage. Because as long as your bank balance is healthy, you're confident. As long as your marriage is good, you feel secure. As long as your job is going well, you've got a strong sense of identity. I discovered this when I left Dublin and was in this period where I was an ordained minister without a church. I realized how much of my identity as a man was caught up in my job. And I know, and I preach it, that we should all have our identity only in Jesus Christ. And that sounds nice, but the reality for a lot of us, especially, can I say the men, that's not sexist. That's just a 
that's just something I've observed, that so much of us men, we get our identity through what we do. And so when I went to my next pastor's meeting with 20 senior leaders, and I was no longer a senior leader for church, I want to tell you I felt like an imposter. I felt like I had no right to be there. And God that summer took me through a stripping back process of going, your identity is not in being called reverend or pastor or leading a big church. Your identity is that you're a child of God. You're beloved by the Father. And if you never preach the sermon again, I would love you just as much as I do right now. If you never served again, if you never led anyone to Christ again, if you never prayed again, I would love you just as much as I do right now. Because your identity is not in what you do, it is in who you are. Because look at what Paul says. Where does he get his confidence from? Verses 23, 24. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. I love this. Look at how Paul describes his relationship with God. The God to whom I belong and to whom I serve. His identity, his relationship with God came before what he did. I belong to him, therefore I serve him. Not I serve him so that I might belong to him. All the service we do is not to earn acceptance with God. It's because we're accepted by God and relationship with God. Paul's identity is not in the boat. It's not in anything else. It's in God. It's in being a child of the king. It's about the, 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 knowing that he is a son of God. And therefore, if the boat goes down, he doesn't have to go down with it. He belongs to God and not his belongings. And when you don't belong to your belongings, you can lose your belongings, but you've still got everything. Some of you know what that's like. You know, your job might be good, but it's not God. Your marriage might be good, but it's not God. Your kids might be good, but they're not God. Your bank account might be good, but it's not God. Only your relationship with God is what will keep you afloat. Let's finish up for today, verses 25-26. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground in some island. Again, he says, keep up your courage. 276 men on board and only one is speaking life, hope and peace into the situation. Those whose hope in God and not in the boat can speak courage when everybody else has given up hope. You can tell people, take your eyes off the boat and put them on what really matters. And Paul does as he points him to God. Because what we fix our focus on will determine what we are consumed by. Faith or fear. I found that in my own life. We get to choose where we fix our focus. Do you ever get up in the morning and have just one little negative thought? But you focus on it. And all day you mull on it. And it goes around your head. And by the end of the day it's become this giant thing. Where you fixed your focus grows. What if you fixed your focus on God? What if you fixed your focus on blessing people? What if you fixed your focus on encouraging? What if you fixed your focus on Christ? And let that grow throughout your day. How much different would your life be? Paul is fueled by faith. Look at what he says. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. 
Look at the conviction in those words. I have faith in God. That's easy to say when you're on the shore, but not when you're in the storm. Where does that conviction come from? God has told me. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not positive thinking. It's not just conjecture. It's not just a nice feeling he have. It's not some vague hope. He's basing it on the word of God. Because when we speak the word of God, we can speak with conviction and confidence. We can stand on the promises of God and we can do so with great boldness and undaunted courage. And Paul says, God has told me that we are going to survive this storm. So my faith is not dependent on what I see or what I feel. My faith is dependent and built on what God has said. And God has said it will happen. And I want to finish by saying to you tonight, today that even if right now your circumstances don't change, if God has said something, it will happen. Even if the situation gets worse every day, if God has promised something, it will happen. You may be battered and bruised and feel like you can't hang on any longer, but if God has said he will get you through it, then it will happen. You might lose some stuff along the way that you thought was important, but if God says that stuff was your past and you've still got a future, then it will happen. And even if the boat falls apart and begins to sink, My faith will stay afloat because God has said it will happen. Because my faith isn't in the boat. My faith is in God and in the word of God and in the promises of God. And if God says something, I can stake my whole life on it because it will happen.